1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's a piece yours truly hosted that I trust you will enjoy. It's been a long time since George Will and I have sat down to talk, and many of you know a terrible event happened in November of 2016 that may have driven a wedge between us, and we have to, we have to bridge that divide, because in, in November of 2016, we all know what happened. The Cubs beat the Indians in the World Series, and therefore, George Will and I just really can't talk much anymore. Welcome back, George. It's great to have you. It's not my fault
2: that this year the Minnesota Twins woke up and decided they were the 1927 Yankees.
1: That will not last. That will not last. The the things that will last are the subject of the conservative sensibility, your brand-new book. And I've got to say, first of all, it's wonderful. And secondly, I've done something with the conservative sensibility I've never done before. I actually bought the book because I wanted to listen to it Peter Ganim reads it quite eloquently, and normally people, and you sent me the book, but I wanted to listen to this one because I sense it's your magnum opus, and having listened to most of it now, is that what you consider it to be?
2: It is. I I almost jocularly considered naming it my closing argument, but I'm not going anywhere. That's (laughs) too valedictory. Yes, it's a summation of uh, how I think the conservative sensibility which is a way of seeing and experiencing and anticipating events, plays across great questions from foreign policy and education to political economy and the problem of equality of opportunity, a range of policy issues. But when I say sensibility, I mean more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. It's more about a way of seeing. It's not. I'm not trying to tell people what to think, but how to think about uh, complex social problems.
1: And to do so in the context of particularly American conservatism as opposed to blood and soil conservatism. I have been listening to this, George, mostly on the path between Old Town Alexandria and Mount Vernon, but also walking around Alexandria. And George Washington, of course, figures heavily at the beginning of this, at the Princeton at the Battle of Princeton, and throughout the constitutional moment, which begins in seventeen seventy six and concludes in seventeen eighty nine. So you have rooted your your closing argument in a uh, an argument that began in 1776 and which continues today, which is to be aware of the frailty of human institutions and of direct majority rule. Precisely. That democracy in a free
2: society is not the default setting for humanity. It's a very complicated creation that requires very rich social soil. The, uh, uh, it seems to me clear that uh, what George Washington did was not just found a country, but Created the, it created a great presidential office that has, I think, grown far out of proportion to anything the founders had in mind. The uh, argument in American politics for the last century or so has been between James Madison and his constitutional architecture of separation of powers and all the rest, and, on the other hand, Woodrow Wilson— uh, who was the first president to criticize the American founding, and who did not do it peripherally. He did a root and branch by saying that a government of s- separated powers was fine once when we were a thinly populated country with 80% of people living within 20 miles of Atlantic Tidewater. But now, said Wilson, we're a united continental nation held together by copper wires and steel rails, and therefore we need a government that is unhampered by separation of powers, and particularly we need a president who can bestride the uh, earth like a colossus and make the government move with dispatch and efficiency. Well, I think uh, we've tried that, and I don't think people are happy.
1: They are not happy. I, one of the many elegant phrases in the conservative sensibility, though, is the one where you say the modern conservative movement's attempt to recapture the Madisonian dynamic is a, is akin to lassoing a locomotive with a cobweb. Checking the executive with the constitutional structure has become very difficult. I talk about it almost weekly with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College and many other people. You have been meditating on it, and you're not... A pessimist, but you're not an optimist either. You're a realist about decline, and you're realist about the ravages of time. And I wonder if you've added in the factor that the technology now has dumbed us down so much. I don't know that anyone meditates on these things anymore.
2: I think you're right. Uh, what what are called social media, and might better be called anti-social media,
1: huh.
2: have have well, they're they're just made for snarky negativity and for universal disparagement, and they give rise over time, and over not very much time, it turns out, to a culture of contempt, in which people feel that they're not exercising critical faculties if they praise something or someone. It, it's an alarming decline in our, our civic discourse, and it's going to take an awful long time to unring this bell and get us back to something, uh, not a culture of reticence, perhaps, but a culture of restraint and respect.
1: I don't know that we can get back. I'm going to play the full pessimist here, uh, George Will. And you write about uh, the ruins of Rome and when the decline and fall of the Roman Empire was begun. And I have been reading in tandem with the conservative sensibility, Andrew Roberts' life of Napoleon. And his education is overwhelming. And the education of the framers is overwhelming when compared to the education of the average American today. And I, I go back to Jefferson running to Madison in 1784, because you talk about these guys throughout this book. Jefferson writes to him, the proposition for a convention has had the result. I expect that if one could be obtained, I do not know whether it would do more harm than good. While Mr. Patrick Henry lives, another bad constitution would be formed and saddled forever on us. What we have to do, I think, is to devoutly to pray for his death. In the meantime... Keep alive the idea that the present is but an ordinance and to prepare the minds of the young men. Do you think we're preparing the minds of the young men and women in 2019 for these kind of challenges?
2: Certainly not. We have an enormous amount of data on this. We know that college students study less than they used to, write less than they used to, read fewer books than they used to. In, in short, we have, to use your phrase, dumbed down higher education. You, you, you say you're being the pessimist. My book is in part and explicitly says so, a summons to intelligent pessimism, not fatalism. Nothing is, seems to me as inevitable, but the fundamental conservative truth is that nothing lasts. And what you try to do is maneuver against the, the wreckage done by what Lincoln called in his first great speech the silent artillery of time. And there's so many ways for... Uh, This is the basis of pessimism. There's so many ways for things to go wrong. And it's so hard to recover institutions, civil and political, of freedom when they have been allowed to decay and erode and rot. And uh, I think we're far along this. If you're looking for a sign of optimism, the headlines in this morning's paper will do. That is the fact that Republicans in the Senate... Uh, seem to have found their pulse again. And they're pushing back against the idea that this president or any president should be able to unilaterally impose taxes on the American people, which is what tariffs are. Uh, there's signs, flickering signs yet, but signs nonetheless of intelligent life in Congress, which is saying after 40, 50, and 60 years of, constantly spinning off powers to the executive branch and enabling the administrative state to become the Frankenstein it has become, perhaps, just perhaps, they're recovering the Madisonian equilibrium of pride in their own branch of government, and they're understanding that their branch is properly rivalrous with the executive branch, not... Part of a team player.
1: Now, I am an intelligent pessimist. You do injure, uh, enjoin uh, people to intelligent pessimism. That is quote more than mere mood. And I and I try to have that. I am a, a an optimist only because the Supreme Court has added, uh, has has restocked with justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and the lower benches with forty one Federalist Society approved originalists, and that there might be a tendency to restrain the administrative state, which was Woodrow Wilson's uh, terrible legacy upon the United States. and But you're not such an optimist that the counter-majoritarian judiciary can actually check this. Where are you now on, on, on your enthusiasm level for whether or not the courts are up to returning us to the Madisonian design?
2: Well, I don't know if they're up to it, but they're our last best hope. Uh, we have seen and partly this was encouraged by careless rhetoric on the part of conservatives, conservatives said for years, what we want is judicial deference. No, we want, we want to understand that judicial deference often is dereliction of the judicial duty to supervise the excesses of democracy. There was a time when they had a doctrine called the non-delegation doctrine. Yes. When they would say to Congress, you have no right to spin off powers, essentially legislative powers, to executive agencies simply because it's convenient for you to do so. The one great mistake, and it's not really his fault, the sainted Madison said in the Federalist Papers, you see in the legislature at all times, the legislature sucking all power into its impetuous vortex. Well, the reverse has been the case for the last century. It has been. The legislature.
1: Yeah, the legislature has spun off powers, and this must stop. They, they do, they're do; they addicted to attention, but they're not addicted to responsibility. Let me talk about the good news in the conservative sensibility, and that is actually its focus often very subtle on Lincoln. And I, wa- I want to quote maybe the best line in the book. Lincoln, the most luminous career in the history of American democracy, the most morally edifying career in the history of world politics. I agree with this. But would you explain why that is?
2: Yes, and I, I'll begin with a phrase you used a moment ago, the countermajoritarian difficulty. Lincoln uh, his ascent to greatness began when he recoiled in 1854 against the Kansas-Nebraska Act sponsored by a senator from Illinois, Stephen Douglas. What the Kansas-Nebraska Act did, essentially, was say, we're going to solve the problem of what to do about slavery in the territories that were not yet states. We're going to solve it with popular sovereignty. We'll submit it to a vote. People can vote slavery up. They can vote it down. It's a matter of moral indifference so long as we have majority rule. Lincoln said no. Lincoln said America is not about a process, majority rule. It is about a condition, which is liberty. And in that recoil by Lincoln against the kansas nebraska Act, this great career began uh, that lasted, of course, his life only 11 more years, but what in 11 years?
1: And and in that, I think there is the hope that we can produce out of any crisis the necessary individual. You write at length that the Constitution does not presuppose great men. It, It is the work of an extraordinary generation, but it does not require... As de Gaulle said, graveyards are full of indispensable men. It doesn't need a Washington though it needed a Washington at the beginning. I am still confident in this Constitution. I really am uh george will and even I am though i'm too. so do you think so that's that comes down to but it requires an educated citizenry. It requires people to sit down and debate in the way that they did, even when they had a demagogue like henry around they They have to engage and i I think social media is destroying the ability to talk. You're about to go on with my friend Stephanie Rule. I understand. You will be on for five or seven minutes, right? What can be accomplished in five or seven minutes?
2: Uh, Not a whole lot. But what Madison said was majorities ought to rule, and majorities are, as a matter of fact, going to rule in the long run. The trick, he said, it's not a trick, but the, the test of a good society is that majority opinion should be refined and filtered and cooled through the slow working of the separation of powers through and representative institutions so that you wind up in the end with, and this is one of the lovely phrases in Madison, you wind up with what he wanted was mitigated democracy. And it seems to me that uh, that's what, uh, as you say, has been partially short-circuited by the instantaneous communications and the intemperate instantaneous communications of the social media.
1: Let me talk to you about a couple of the problems that you identify in the conservative sensibility. And once again, I would recommend to my audience, I very rarely say listen to a book on tape. I think Peter Ganim has read George Will's brand new book, The Conservative Sensibility, with, with great style. It is not rushed, and therefore people are obliged to hear the words of the framers they can't skip over block quotes they don't miss beautiful sentences and therefore it's a it's a life's work and so I want people to read it very very closely there is however a, a recognition at the heart of the book it's almost at the center perhaps intentionally that family disintegration is the worst problem in America you don't make very many absolute judgments but you made an absolute judgment there family disintegration is the worst problem in America i agree Where is the remedy, George Will?
2: It's very difficult to fashion a remedy for a problem that no one knows how the problem came about. Here's the thing. In 1965, a 38-year-old social scientist in in Lyndon Johnson's Labor Department, a man who became my very best friend, Senator Pat Moynihan of New York, wrote a report called The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. In he said, we have a national crisis because 23.7% of all African-American children are born out of wedlock. Today, the figure is 72%. 40% of all American first births, regardless of race, color, creed, national origin, 40% of first births are out of wedlock. And here, here's the dynamite. A majority of mothers under 30 are not living with the fathers of their children. Correct. When Pat Moynihan said this and created such a stir, he said, the lesson of history is clear from the wild Irish slums of the East Coast in the 19th century to South Central Los Angeles. Today, when you have an unco- a largely unparented, meaning fathers absent, cohort of adolescent males, you're going to have chaos unruly neighborhoods, schools so busy trying to maintain discipline they cannot teach. Now, I have raised three boys, and I know that the whole point of civilization is to civilize adolescent males. It's very clear. Yes, And and we're failing. We are going to fail this as long as we have family disintegration. Uh, And And as I say, this has happened in Portugal, Wales, Scotland, Sweden. No one knows quite why. It's happened worst in our country.
1: Now, the temptation... to resolve this is the authoritarian temptation. Earlier today I talked with Admiral James Stavridis, one of the really smart people about China and their means of social control. And the Whig theory of history which you have laid out uh, elaborately in the conservative sensibility that freedom will always triumph over authority, the victory of former is guaranteed. I don't know George Will, the Chinese are doing their social credit system. They are using facial recognition and the tools of our wizards in the Silicon Valley to control a billion people. I, I wonder if they are not uh, going to beat us to a solution to family disintegration, which is they're going to demand it, and we can't figure out a way to have freedom encourage it.
2: Well, that is that is the danger. I do not, emphatically do not, accept the Whig theory of history. Nothing is fixed and nothing is guaranteed. But you're quite right. Since Nixon went to China in 1972, American policy under both parties has been the same, which was the hope, a hope now being dashed by events, the hope that when you opened China to market forces, that these would bring with them the culture of capitalism, which means a culture of individualism, of restraint, of deferral of gratification, of industriousness, and all the rest and that this would be inevitably a solvent, dissolving authoritarian institutions in China. The grim truth which you have efficiently outlined is that China has is now in the process of showing, with the use of the new information technologies, which means the use of surveillance technologies, that you can have robust economic growth compatible with an authoritarian regime. And that is alarming. In so many different ways,
1: now, at the heart of the conservative sensibility is also a meditation on melancholia, which I had actually never understood as well as you put it, comparing that which is with that which might have been uh, produces this sense of me- melancholia, and only humans can are, are capable of this i 'm not sure i 'm going to give into it, but yesterday, Mitt Romney gave a speech on the floor of the Senate, informed, smart, deep, wise about both Russia and China. And I had a little melancholia come over me because I don't know that our system of government or elections can select Lincolns anymore. I don't think Lincoln would stand a chance. But in the person (laughs) of Pete Buttigieg, in the person of Pete Buttigieg, I I just want to ask you, he's got incandescent intelligence, eight languages. He is a, a first at... At Oxford, with his roads, I have talked to him i've discussed with him he's calm he's measured, of course he's a, a married gay man, so he's outside of the norm of America. Do you think that someone like him or some other person can be tossed up from the Democratic party to uh, to rein in their craziness
2: well that, that's an excellent question I mean remember you know we talk about the debate coming up why we dignify this little episode that's coming up as a debate, I do not know. When Lincoln and Douglas debated, one would talk for an hour, the next person would talk for an hour and a half, and then the man who began would talk for a final 30 minutes. That was a debate. That required thinking and revealing your mind and arguing coherently from premise to conclusion. Today, I just don't know, Hugh. Uh, I am staggered by the amount of time Democrats are spending, arguing about and promising things they know will not happen. Example one, abolish the Electoral College. They want to abolish the Electoral College because they say with some truth that it gives a little extra weight to smaller states. Well, it only takes 13 of the smaller states to stop abolition of the Electoral College by constitutional amendment, and it will be stopped. Example two, Kamala Harris and others say we want Medicare for all, and the end of private insurance. Now, what a way to begin a presidential campaign by offending 200 million Americans who get their insurance either from their employers or other private sources and rather like it. It's stunning to me.
1: So so they are about uh, promising things which cannot be had in order to win the 1% of their party that is electorally active and watch, for example, our MSNBC audience is the... The resistance lives there, and they think that's the way to the nomination. I want to remind people that there's also a move afoot to do away with the Electoral College via the state compact. I believe it's unconstitutional. George, well, you wrote your doctorate uh, 50 years ago, beyond the reach of majorities. Does anyone on the Republican side have the guts to make the argument that we are not and cannot become, and it would be a disaster if we were a majoritarian society, as Lincoln made that argument?
2: Uh, it would be very difficult to imagine anyone in public life right now who would go to the country and say, the voice of the people is not the voice of God. Uh, The voice of the majority that we want to adhere to is the special majority that founded the country and wrote the Constitution. There are some very distinguished good senators who are, are trying to maneuver at the margins to begin to claw back power and restore the Madisonian equilibrium. Senator Portman of Ohio, Senator Toomey of Pennsylvania, but they are few and they are far between and they are not nearly enough to make a difference yet.
1: Now, I look, I want to close my last five minutes. You have to go uh, on and talk about the conservative sensibility and try and persuade, I hope, members of the left to read it and think about it. Uh, There is, in this court, the Chief Justice is a man of extraordinary intellect, I think Brett Kavanaugh has got extraordinary intellect. I'm very hopeful about Justice Gorsuch. I know Judges Alito, Justices Alito and Thomas have extraordinary intellect. Do you think that the court would find itself uh, facing a revolt if it moved rapidly to restore um, uh, the balance of power? The Madisonian dream that you so very carefully articulate in the conservative sensibility, if they moved quickly with the Establishment Clause this year, with the Second Amendment next year, with uh, the right to life and the privacy doctrine cut back in the third year, would there be a revolt against it?
2: I don't think so. The Supreme Court, for all the fact that it has been swept into the maelstrom of partisan politics in recent years, particularly with confirmation politics, the Supreme Court remains second only to the military, is the most respected American institutions. One of the miracles of modern American history is the fact that when the court took a countermajoritarian stance in favor of racial segregation, which was not only opposed in the South, but opposed in much of the North, we tend to forget, it is simply a, it, it, the country with amazing acquiescence deferred to the court. So I think the court, there's no danger, in my view, that the court is going to move too fast.
1: And is there a danger that the Democrats really would pack the court? Do they Have they forgotten their history enough not to realize that 1937 <laughs> was a disaster for FDR?
2: Of course they've forgotten their history because they never studied it in schools because schools don't <laughs> teach history anymore. But you're quite right to, to warn them of this. In 1938, uh, uh, the country recoiled against Franklin Roosevelt's A, plan to pack the Supreme Court, and B, to purge from his party Democrats who resisted this assault on the Constitution. From 1938 on until 1964, there was no liberal legislative majority in Congress. The liberal legislative majority was restored after 1964 when. I cast my first presidential vote and cast it happily for Barry Goldwater to the memory of whom my book is dedicated. Because Goldwater was so so soundly defeated, he only carried 44 states, Lyndon Johnson swept into Congress a liberal legislative majority, and what they did, fulfilling their entire wish list, was begin the decline of respect for government. In 1970, Hugh, 70% of the, I'm sorry, 1964, 70% of the American people said they trusted the federal government to do the right thing all the time or almost all the time. Today, that number is below 20%. As the government's pretensions have grown, its prestige has plummeted. And my my progressive friends would do well to say, maybe we ought to reconsider what we have done to the government.
1: And I hope I hope there are opportunities for you to make that argument at length on places like Jamie Weinstein's podcast. Uh, My very last question. Are there any opportunities left for the kind of conversation? Talk radio is it. I think we're down to talk radio, George. Will, and as a result, the firing line that may have informed you and certainly informed my youth and the opportunities for Lincoln Douglas style debate, they're going away. I think the appetite's still there, but I think they're going away. Do you see them being reborn anywhere?
2: Well, technology is our friend in this case, because uh, podcasts are a, a great help for this. Uh, an awful lot of, Look, podcasts, talk radio, everything exists under the tyranny of the bell-shaped curve. There are a few that are just god-awful, a few that are really excellent, and most are mediocre. True, But the fact is, uh, I think podcasts and talk radio, I'm out there trying to interest people in a book that's fairly substantial in its demands it makes on readers. But I find that as I talk about it, it is most useful to talk about it on the kind of discussion you and I have just had. On radio, something that gives a little space for people to breathe intellectually.
1: Well, go forth and find more. The conservative sensibility is the perfect Father's Day gift. I gave it to myself because my two boys weren't thinking that way. And I gave it to myself on audio tape. So I hope every father gives it to themselves and mothers to themselves. George, well, congratulations. It's a magnificent book.
2: Thank you very much. I've enjoyed this tremendous Talk to you soon. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy.